We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Hello, I'm Skosha Monkovic. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders In Conversation, a monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of emergency management and the creative sectors as they prepare, respond and recover from disasters. Today my guest is Dr Deborah Parkinson, the Director of Gender and Diversity Australia. Deborah's research following the 2009 Victorian bushfires has been a foundational tool in promoting a deeper understanding of the role played by gender in survivor responses to natural disaster. And her ongoing work in this space seeks to embed these insights into emergency management practice. I'm really pleased that Deborah could join us to talk about her work applying a gender lens to natural disasters and ways to incorporate that perspective into disaster resilience planning. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Deborah Parkinson. Welcome to Creative Responders, Deborah. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm here today on Yagaraturabal country in Minjin. Where are you joining us from today? Yes, I'm on um, Jajawaring country in Dalesford. Oh, it's a beautiful part of the world. Yes, it's cold and frosty. (laughs) (laughs) Makes you realise you're alive, eh? (laughs) That cold weather. Yeah. So, Deb, Gender and Diversity Australia came from what was originally the Gender and Diversity pod, and it's largely grown from your research and insights following the 2009 Victorian bushfires. Um, This work, I understand, has brought together several key research and support organisations working in this space. Can can you tell us a bit about the pod, how the pod originally came about, and how the organisation has evolved into its current form? Like a lot of things, it started straight after the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires. So um, what happened was on the Monday, straight after those terrible fires at Women's Health Goulburn Northeast in Wangaratta, you know, the staff all gathered together. We just really wanted to help in some way because um, the worst of the bushfires in King Lake um, and the Mitchell and Murrindindi Shires was actually part of the region, the Hume region. Um, and uh, all of us made lots of phone calls to people down there to see what we could do. And the consistent message was, don't come here. You know, we're absolutely inundated with volunteers. So instead we thought, well, we'll take a step back. What we'd always been good at was not really recording women's voices in the sense of audio recording, but documenting women's voices and women's experiences. So um, our advice was not to, the advice to us was not to go down to the region for, you know, at least several months till things settled down. So in that interim period, we did a literature review to see what, what happens, you know, after catastrophic disasters like Black Saturday. And consistently across the world, it was an increase in violence against women. So we got, we had ethics approval from Monash University um, and also from Northeast Health in Wangaratta. And we looked generally at what were women's experiences um, 
So rather than ask about violence, we just said, you know, what happened? How was it? Those open sort of questions. And of the 30 women we interviewed, 16 of them spoke about violence against them since the fires that they identified as clearly linked to those bushfires. For 10 of them, it was new violence that hadn't happened before. Um, the only interesting thing was before we did that, we spoke to 47 disaster recovery workers um, and without exception, they were, they were really affected by not just the fires, sometimes they didn't even have that fire experience, but affected by what they could see was the struggle for women, children and for men. So when we first talked uh, when we first took our research results out to the public, it was a bit frustrating for us as women's health workers because the first hand to go up, you know, after we spoke about the pretty terrible circumstances for women and children with having survived the disaster, they then had this what we called a hidden disaster in the home um, where they were expected to put up with violence against them. Um, so... That, that was for a number of reasons. Um, it was because the men were seen to be good men. You know, they were men who were, who were, were seen by volunteers. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly it. They were protectors. Uh, they were looking after the community. They were normally okay. It was uh, women were told, just give him some time. And police were not following their code of conduct. So they would also, if they, if they were called out, which was the exception rather than the rule, um, you know, they, they weren't following the code of conduct and they were also saying to women, he's not himself, he's a good bloke, you know, he's, he's suffering, he doesn't have a job anymore, he was terrific on the day of the, the fires, just give him some time. So um, there was an expectation generally from friends, family, to be a good wife, to be a supportive wife, to put the family first. And that came from surprising sources, including trauma counsellors. And even the system, the domestic violence system, was compromised because of the case management system. So um, people who were domestic violence workers were saying to women, oh, you've got a case manager, you should talk to the case manager. And the case managers were saying, we don't know anything about this, you know, go, go and see someone who's a specialist. Um, one woman said to us, you know, I'll get out of here in a box because she tried everything and she was just stuck in that situation. And, of course, domestic violence manifests differently after disasters and there are all those additional pressures of lost infrastructure. It's such a ma massive layered area, isn't it? So many emotions. And it's a very big box, as you say, to open up for people to have a look at, to realise things that we're, we're looking at aren't functionally working, even though the evidence of the outside is about care and concern and immediate support, etc., etc., and the pressure of other things piling in, financial pressures, emotional pressures, yes. fear of not having done... Um, as, as much as they should have, all those pressures that start to pile in on people. But with all of that knowledge, how did you sort of evolve into your current form? Like what, what did that lead you to want to do? 
Well, straight after the women's research, um, we had people in the audience when we presented the findings. The first question was, you know, without exception, but what about the men? Mm. Um, So people's concern went immediately to supporting men. To the extent when we wrote the report, we said, when the stakes are high, it is men's interests that will be protected. That's exactly what happens. So one of these, I said, look, we're a women's health service. You know, if someone wants to pay us to research with men, we will. Um, So Professor Frank Archer from Monash University Disaster Resilience Initiative, um, he came up to us and said, do you want to do the research with us? So um, at that stage, uh, Claire Zara, my research partner, who really sadly died in 2015, um, so this was about 2012, and we were both working with Women's Health Global Northeast, joined with Monash University, um, and we did research with men. There were 32 men who offered to be interviewed, and the interviews, you know, people say men don't talk, but the interviews went for two hours generally. And there was only one man who did not cry with us. They were so affected by what had happened to them. And what they told us was that they had so many gendered expectations. They didn't use that word. They they said we were expected, um, you know, to to look after the family on the day, to make the right decision um, afterwards, to get the family rehoused. You know, all these expectations. Remember, one man said. You know, Christ, if you weren't an effective, productive member of the community, you were in trouble. And another man said to us, I can't walk out the door with people saying, why weren't you here on the day? Why haven't you got the family back? Why aren't you back at work? So huge expectations of men to be protectors and providers, huge expectations of women to give up their right to safety, to their own job, um, to to live, you know, without violence. They had to give that up, put their own needs last, sacrifice for the good of the family. So after those two pieces of research, we um, I was then working with Women's Health in the North as well. So it was this really nice um, group of three organisations who were really committed to this gender and disaster work. So we formed the GADPOD, Gender and Disaster Pod, We attracted consecutive funding from government, some philanthropics from a few different places and were able to do research including with LGBTIQA plus people and research on um, barriers to women in firefighting, uh, long-term disaster resilience research, um, more recently research on COVID because, of course, COVID is a disaster as we all, you know, well and truly know. Um, so that, that research was looking at primary prevention practitioners in family violence and what happens in COVID, which is in a nutshell, that they were pulled off that primary prevention work to do response work and even to do work like packing rats. Mm. Um, yeah, so that commitment to women's right to live free from violence disappears in a disaster. Becomes a, a lesser of a expectation. Yes, mm. Um, there's a, a key, the first gender and disaster researcher, um, Elaine Ennison from the United States. She was from the Colorado Natural Hazard Centre. So Elaine Ennison has this fantastic line, 
don't talk to me about gender, we've got a disaster on our hands. And that continues to be the response. You know, it's not the right time to talk about family violence, not the right time to talk about gender equality. Look at what we have to do. Look at the this place after the floods. Look at it after the fires. Whole whole towns were gone. So there's this evident idea. across the board, isn't it, that anything that is uh, deprioritised in general is in a disaster more so that if we are thinking of whole of community, the people who are vulnerable, the ones that are carrying the weight and and are not given the same presence in that platform of recovery. That's exactly what happens. And our argument is that we we are not expecting people to do anything in that, you know, command and control centre. We're expecting it to happen beforehand, you know, in the planning. If you've got the right people around the table, you've got the right policies and procedures, the right warnings going out, we won't have women and children in this situation and we won't be expecting, um, you know, the unachievable from men. And we'll be, we'll be alert to the particular needs of LGBTIQA plus people. We won't be saying, as emergency services do now, but we treat everyone the same. Mm. You know, we're not discriminating against them. But in doing that, they're not alert to the particular needs of those communities. Yeah, and it's a bit of a, a screen, isn't it? We're treating everyone as equal. The, the problem is there's not equality in the first place. So, uh, again, we're, we're, we walk on shifting grounds, don't we, in terms of we have to highlight an issue in order for it to be given um, precedence rather than, um, yes. as you say, a hidden disaster. Yes, that's right. And to answer your question about how that evolution happened, in March of last year we were contacted by the Department of Social Security federally who said um, we would really like to have your training and resources extended across the country. So it was about nine months of negotiating and working out how we could deliver this um, and then uh, and Senator Anne Rustin and Senator Bridget McKenzie announced the funding on the 1st of January this year. So as Gender and Disaster Australia, we're now established to deliver that particular piece of work. Oh, that's so exciting. Can you tell us a little about the training? Like what's your drive in terms of initiating a training format of communication? We've got just the most spectacular team together to do it and um, there are people who have been working with us you know since the start pretty much um, we have had training ongoing so it's been happening with organizations like the red cross nationally um, with local government emergency management units with the cfa um, and sometimes with a mix of emergency service organisations and community, which I think works the best, that's a fabulous mix, particularly straight after a disaster when people are looking for some answers to what's happened to them. I was just going to say I think that's so very true. We, we also uh, presented training and I think the most deep changeable conversations occur when you have a whole collection of people in the room that are part of this bigger ecology that we sit against. There's so many people that are involved and so many things that get touched on in a, in a space of impact. Everything is raised to the surface, isn't it, to have everyone part of a collective conversation and to share language around how they talk about issues or how they try to find collective solutions is so very important. 
Yes, and I think that way of talking about it that we've used in our research reports and in the training has really resonated with people because we we really prioritise the voices of people affected. Um, so you'll have a quote and people will respond to that. They can recognise it in, in themselves or in people they know and love. Um, so with our training, we include people who are Black Saturday survivors. Um, some are on video, some are actually are trainers as well. Um, Liam Leonard, who was the former director of Gay and Lesbian Health Victoria, is our key trainer in the LGBTIQA plus part of the training. Steve O'Malley is a firefighter of more than 30 years. Um, so he brings that particular really deep lived experience of what it's like to be on the other side of firefighting. Um, we've got Rachel McKay. Um, Rachel has developed the training with us. Rachel was a key worker with Claire and, and with me. Um, so she's been delivering this training from her point of view as a women's health worker and a social worker. Um, so our training involves uh, two people uh, it's somebody who has expertise in the emergency management field and somebody who has expertise in the gender equality, violence against women field, and the two deliver this training. We're really lucky too to have Susie Reid, who was the former CEO of Women's Health Goulburn North East. She continues on as a trainer now that she's retired. From the point of view of the Creative Recovery Network, we truly believe that there's a great value of inclusiveness of culture and the arts in programs. And I think in situations that you're talking about, we see a really deep and long role that we have played in communities and can continue to play in terms of opening up platforms for people to have safe conversations and to be able to unpack experiences in a way that can be then um, translated or, or, or build conversations in our communities in a way that builds safer and more connected spaces for for everyone as you say often the vulnerable voices are the ones that need support in order to have that platform to talk about their experiences or to start to take on uh, some self-determined charge in terms of what are the what are the things that we can do to resolve these situations in a way that's safe and um, connected for all people um you know, community arts and cultural development have been operating in that space for a very long time. And I know after reading some of your earlier research, we did do some programs in Queensland, um, primarily through working with little kids to reach the families because understanding very stressed families, um, the stress is reflected onto the children and often it's maybe through reaching children that you can start to have a conversation with the adults in the family around care and love and play and all those things that bring back some possibility of, of reframing a kind of fractured engagement. What, do you have experiences, Deb, that you know of where you've seen arts or cultural programs really being effectual in this space or things that you've used yourself? I'll just mention one one thing that was really sad. Um, the police on Black Saturday were not well informed because, of course, nobody understood what was going to happen with that fire. It was completely unprecedented in documented times. 
um, and the information that the police had was not right. And one um, police officer told us that he was sending people back up into the fire. You know, he was instructed to do that. They thought they were sending them away from the fire in King Lake, but instead they were kind of sending them up towards it. And he was really suffering with knowing that that had happened, that, you know, he had done that. And, of course, what you have is often women and children driving out alone. Mm. And that's such a gendered response to fire that the man is going to stay and fight, the woman's going to escape. But usually the woman is trying to convince the man to get in that car and leave, and they leave it too late. And this is documented by um, Professor John Hanman's research from Melbourne University mm. and many places. Um, so, you know, the, this particular officer felt really terrible, like, you know, unbelievably bad about sending women and children in a direction that turned out to be unsafe. And a woman who was a speech therapist, um, we interviewed her, and she said that she had her two little kids in the back and one was pre-verbal, just a little baby, really. Um, I don't know how old, but not talking. And... Um, as soon as this little baby started to talk, he said to her, why did the police officer send us back towards the fire? Oh, wow. And, yeah, and so this poor little kid, you know, had been thinking that but didn't have the words to say it until some time later. And we inter we had a focus group of, you know, 18 to 20-year-olds for our long-term disaster resilience research and they were thinking back to when they were 8 and 10 on Black Saturday. And the kind of memories that they have still haunt them. You know, they still have dreams about it. And the dreams are about their powerlessness, you know, because they were just waiting, you know, for parents to, to agree to, to leave. Or they, because they left too late, they ended up at the King Lake Shed overnight. And you can imagine, you know, how terrible that was for them. So I think that approach that you described of working with the kids and that filtering to the parents and the family is just brilliant. We've incorporated art right from the start. And when I talk about art, I'm thinking generally about poetry and um, songs and writing as well. And even the way we write our research reports with so much emphasis on the words of the people is quite different to a lot of academic research reports. We have worked since the start with Honor Henderson and Sid Tun, um, who are from the Butterfly Studios, and Sarah Hammond. Um, so all the beautiful artwork that you can see on our website is on each of the different reports, and we always turn to them if we need something for a flyer, you know, or a postcard. And people comment to us about that, you know, how that that visual imagery that we use is associated with it and it's comforting. There's a, a particular one, um, Disaster is No Excuse for Family Violence. It's a beautiful postcard on one side. It has one of Honor's uh, dancing women and it's just a beautiful image with no writing and on the other side it says, you know, how, how you might help a woman, how you might let her speak about the violence against her just in four easy steps, then with the, the phone, the crisis helplines. Um, the other thing, when we have conferences, we include people themselves to, to speak. And because it's often so moving, we have um, an art therapy room and, you know, whoever is emceeing says, 
If you're starting to feel overwhelmed, go into the art therapy room. You don't have to do any art. You can just look around at the other art. You can speak to the artist. And they've been so well utilised. In fact, this isn't going to relate to the audio well, but can can you see this beautiful book here? Mm. This is, it's like a concertina book. It's just so beautiful. Um, and it's got all the bits of art that the delegates did, you know, when they went into that studio. So Sarah and her team put it together in that beautiful commemorative book for us. And we've actually taken bits of it and printed a number of those, um, a number of copies of that, you know, to give to key people. And they're so accessible just with quotes from people. And I think we've given them to yeah, the way of explaining okay. the unexplainable, isn't it? I think that's one of the key roles that creativity plays. You know, how do you make sense of things that are so senseless? Oh, uh, that's exactly right. And, Scotia, you would remember diversity in disaster because you were a key person <laughs> in running the arts, culture and creativity session. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah, that that was fantastic. And the City of Melbourne Arts House came and did a different session in that. Um, Yes. Um, The other thing we try to do, um, we we had Professor Danielle Salamajor. She was speaking about her work. She's a philosopher with Sydney University. And she wrote a book called Summertime, which was um, Reflections on a Vanishing Future. Christine Erickson is a fantastic uh, disaster researcher and she did a review of Danielle's book and it was published in AGEM, the Australian Journal of Emergency Management, which is usually a pretty practical journal and it's um, aimed at the emergency management sector. So we do try and infiltrate little bits of art wherever we can. Well, it's interesting. I I think the more I talk to scientists and people trying to have a kind of future thinking lens around how we move into these lives we will have of cascading impacts, eventually with the pressure of climate change, they turn to poetry and they turn to ways of trying to make sense and communicate these ideas. You talked about love earlier. It's not a word that's often used in this context. There's a biologist, Anya Elizabeth Johnson, and she talks about this idea of, well, what if we get it right? What if we lead with love? Oh, absolutely. And it's making me think of a woman that we interviewed who's been really key to um, explaining our work to people through her own experience. And she's so insightful and so, uh, so poetic in the way she described what happened to her. Um, and another is actually a poet, another woman we interviewed, um, and we used her poem. It's called um, The Way He Tells It. So we use that as a title. And, and another poem was called The Landscape of My Soul. So that's a, a title in the chapter. But her poetry captures things and, and really really gets people to understand her experience so much better than a whole lot of academic yeah. writing, I think. Well, it goes straight to the heart. I mean, there's a place for both. Yes, well, one, one yes. feeds the other. So it's pretty encouraging to see um, this recognition at the federal level. I mean, since you've started this work, what kind of changes or improvements have you seen to that level of awareness around these issues and how they're being implemented? Because 
it's okay to talk about it, but what, what do we what are we starting to see in actions to see that things are changing or that we have some hopeful sense of moving forward with greater um, sensibility? What we've noticed is when we first started to talk about increased violence against women, there was a massive rejection of this message and people were really angry with Claire and with me as researchers and they tried to silence us in the same way that they silenced the women. Um, Since then, well, it actually started two years later at that first conference where as the Assistant Commissioner Tim Cartwright said, as a man in uniform standing here before you, I can tell you that men in public, we are strong and we are fearless and we cope. When we go home, we don't cope at all and the women and the children suffer. And once he said that, a man in uniform saying that, people started to accept that maybe it's true. And over the years, we've seen that people really accept it to the extent now with COVID. um, COVID's different because it doesn't involve heroes in the same way. So people are more willing to accept it. But nevertheless, when there are floods, when there are fires, you just hear it written and spoken in the media. We know that family violence increases after disasters, which is fantastic. So there's increasing awareness. But when you come to what's behind that, Um, there's a recommendation in the Royal Commission for Natural Disaster Arrangements, recommendation 22.5, and that's the one that we're really funded to address because it talks about the need to address social issues like domestic violence. Um, But if I look generally at the emergency management sector, It's really hard to see that there has been much progress on incorporating that broader view to ensure that what seem to be peripheral issues but are really not are actually part of the service that they deliver to people in times of disaster. To me it seems that it's sort of that systemic culture, isn't it? Like how do we, it's all very well to talk about it but until we put it into practical application then the differentiation is uh, always going to be present. That's absolutely right. We've got this document called the GEM Guidelines, Gender and Emergency Management Guidelines, that were actually funded by the federal government um, probably about six or seven years ago, and that were contributed to by 500 emergency management personnel and signed off by a very senior group within emergency management in the government but they've not been embedded within emergency management practice. So, you know, that would be the first thing to do, to get some real commitment to that. With our new Gender and Disaster Australia organisation, we have an expert advisory committee uh, chaired by Elizabeth Broderick. Um, Of course, Elizabeth is an amazing woman and Because of her influence, we have someone from every state and territory, really senior people, including Mick Gooder, to advise us about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. Um, And we are so hopeful because those members are so generous with their time and expertise and networks. So we're really hopeful that that's going to infiltrate and we will get some embedding of what we know needs to happen. Yeah, it's so vital to have those champions, isn't it, that can really um, place your case forward. 
get you ready. I mean, and that step to have your your organisation now I mean, it just really means a strong position at the table to have that conversation, isn't it? It is, and um, I, I must also um, acknowledge Helen Riseborough, the CEO of Women's Health in the North. She's been so supportive in this transition of us from the GADPOD to the, an independent gender and disaster Australia, and we really couldn't have done it without her. Such great work, Deb. You must be feeling pretty buoyed. I mean, as much as sometimes it's hard to see outcomes, you look back on what you've done, you've achieved amazing things with persistence. <laughs> oh, thank you, Scotia. Well, yeah, I think that your creative recovery network is incredible and absolutely needed. After Black Saturday, uh, there was lots of lobbying which resulted in that ability to go and see a psychologist the bushfire survivors had. They are able to use it for alternative um, ways of healing that included some arts approaches. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if that was just the standard after every disaster? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, as we said before, I think one of the things that we can highlight is that having those alternative spaces means people go to places where they already feel safe. They have an experience that isn't about being so pointed or so directed. So stories have a way to be able to come to the fore in a manageable, emotive way for people um, who are under due stress. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking, we've um, developed a new section for the GEM guidelines on evacuation and relief centres. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have an art therapist there if it if it's safe, you know, uh, for the children? Well, wouldn't it be amazing if you there? had a musician there? to ease oh. wouldn't it be amazing to have someone who you could dance with or someone who could sit down and tell stories I mean yeah. again there are so many uh, ways that we could be supportive and to to have that planned in the preparedness like you say to have that written as a kind of a real sense of contribution is really the big work we have ahead of us as with you, you know how do we embed this in a way that people see value uh, and um, invest in the possibilities of what these different modalities offer. Yes, exactly, because we, we all know they offer so much. Well, thanks, Deb. It's been great connecting in with you, and I really look forward to supporting your work where we can and, and all the great uh, possibilities that this new step opens up for you. Congratulations, and um, such a pleasure to have a chat. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Scotia. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation. And a special thanks to Deborah for making the time to speak with me. The Disaster is No Excuse for Family Violence postcard that Deb talked about in this episode can be found on our webpage for this episode and is also linked in our show notes. It includes a list of four steps frontline workers can take to increase women and children's safety and also includes contact numbers for counselling and support services for people impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse, as well as contact numbers for Kids Helpline and Men's Helpline services. If you'd like to access episode transcripts and research links related to the podcast, head over to creativerecovery.net.au forward slash podcast. This is also where you can find past episodes of our conversation series, along with our audio documentary episodes that share case studies of communities around Australia implementing arts-based programs.
to support disaster preparedness and recovery. This podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and my creative recovery colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow. We'll be back next month with another conversation. I hope you can join us then.